I hope you all are doing well. I hope you, uh, you didn't have any problem uh, getting here this morning on your roads that uh, definitely weren't covered with snow and ice and were perfectly clear. Um, and I hope you've enjoyed this past week of weather above 30 degrees because um, it's not looking like it's going to be much better this week. So I just hope you enjoyed it. Um, and I just want you to know I, I enjoyed it and I enjoyed getting here this morning. It's good to see all of your faces. Um, one of the things I have really enjoyed this year is our church going through the scriptural formation journey. Um, for, I've, I've enjoyed it for a variety of reasons. Uh, one is I've enjoyed reading through the Bible and going through sermons and getting to do that with my church family, you know, knowing that so many of us in the room and at home online have been reading and studying the same parts of Scripture at the same time. It's been very encouraging to me and also helps hold me accountable. Uh, and, but secondly, I've also have really enjoyed it because of the unorthodox uh, order that we have been going through. I think it's one of the, the best things Patrick has done as arranged the books in the order that we're going through in the way that he has. Because typically, when you decide to read through the New Testament, uh, people take one of two routes. They start in Matthew, and they read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then go to Acts and everything else. Or they start in their favorite gospel, skip the other three, and then go straight to Acts. And I say that because I totally... I totally do that. I, uh, I love Jesus uh, very much, uh, but I'll be a bit honest. If I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John back to back to back to back, I'm ready for something different. Um, and maybe that says more about me. So I've enjoyed our kind of unorthodox arrangement and order that we've been going through. And I think it's especially fitting that we are talking about the gospel of Mark now when we are. You see, we just spent these past several weeks going through the book of Acts, and this amazing moment where this small movement grows, and where it expands, and where these house churches are being planted all over the Mediterranean region by, uh, by Peter and Paul and Barnabas and Silas, and there's all these churches popping up all over the place. And I want you to just imagine the setting for a moment. You have these house churches, uh, 10, 15, maybe 20 Christians who have been taught about the, the story and the message of Jesus Christ. By, they've been shared this news by word of mouth from Peter and from Paul and from Silas and Barnabas who either witnessed this or heard it from people who witnessed. This is a message, this, this has been a story that has been passed from word of mouth, and people have been, been convicted by this and been believing. They've been receiving letters from Paul uh, and Peter and these other authors just encouraging them in this walk of faith and this path of discipleship because up to this point, there had not yet been a recorded story. There had not been a recorded gospel of the full life of Jesus Christ. And it's widely believed by scholars that Mark, the gospel of Mark, was the first gospel to be written and to be shared. And so I want you to imagine you're at this house church, and one day, this letter, you get this letter, this scroll, and someone's appointed to read, and it begins like this in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
I love the way that Mark starts his gospel because as, as Travis has already pointed, Mark is all about immediately. He, he's a man of action. His book just from the very beginning has this fast pace to it. There's not slow moments. Unlike Matthew, Mark does not begin with a genealogy. Um, unlike Luke, Mark does not begin by explaining to his friend why exactly he's doing this. Mark begins his gospel by saying, here is the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he jumps immediately into the John the Baptist story and jumps immediately into Jesus in his adult ministry. Um, when I was uh, in Little Rock before we moved up here, I, I was a campus minister um, working with students at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, uh, go Trojans, uh, also known as Euler for short because every, if you said University of Arkansas at Little Rock more than once in the conversation, it was quite a bit. And so I was a campus minister there at Euler. Um, the, it was a great experience. The one challenging thing about it, or one of the challenging things, is that uh, I, I didn't have any experience with campus ministry. Going to Harding and Searcy, where there are, of course, a variety of ministries, but it is a Christian university. There is not a campus ministry uh, setting to it. And so when I started this position, I, I was new. I wanted to get some insight. And so I met with uh, one of the campus ministers from the Methodist campus ministry on campus. He'd been doing the campus ministry for 30 years about. And so I figured, you know, this is a good guy to get some tips, to get some advice. Just what does campus ministry look like? And I wanted to talk to him about what he thought were the best ways to reach out to students. And he said, this is what I've been doing for almost 30 years. It works really well for me. Um, I, you go to campus and you do a survey. You do a survey with students. And he showed me some of the questions on the survey. And so it start off with, uh, what's your favorite ice cream, you know, chocolate or vanilla? Are you, do you like cats or dogs? Who's your favorite sport team? You know, who, what's your favorite car? If you die tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? <laughs> and I remember seeing this, like, okay. Um, you know, like I'm, a, I'm a bit introverted, but you know what? He's been doing this for 30 years. You know, my, let's try it. So I, I, I take these, I print a bunch out, go to campus in the student center at, at Euler, and I'm, I'm asking students these. And, you know, I had, after about seven or eight students who had not so great reactions and maybe not quite yelling but definitely um not pleasant i went back to him and i said these were the responses like these were the reactions i had he said yeah for about every 25 of those you're gonna get one really good one and i just thought well this is not for me um i'll just throw a bunch of pizza parties and hope that works um and, you know, I believe God can work in such a strong and many variety of ways. But I think sometimes when we think about how do we best present the gospel to another person, we sometimes try to make it, we overthink it sometimes. We sometimes try to think of clever ways to maybe sneak it on them. You know, like, do you like puppies? Yeah. What if you die tonight? We, uh, um, we sometimes try to get too clever. And Mark, in his gospel, he is, presenting the, he is presenting Jesus as he is. There's no preface. There's no warning. There's no, uh, here's what you're about to get into. It is just here is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, Son of God. There's story after story of, uh, of 
well, uh, very thoughtful, very smart academic people who aren't Christian, and they decide that they want to set out to prove Christianity wrong. And so in order to pr- prove Christianity wrong, they need to prove Jesus wrong. That's, there's, this, there's many people who set out to do this, and there's a f- handful of stories of people who, in order to prove Jesus wrong, they need to read about Jesus. So they go, they find the Bible, they look at the four Gospels about Jesus, they see that Mark is the shortest, and they think, all right, I'm going to read Mark because it's short, I'm going to figure out what I need to prove Jesus wrong and call it a day. And by the time they finish reading the Gospel of Mark, they are sitting there convicted by the power of Jesus Christ, by the life of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Mark pulls those punches. It gets straight to the point, and it forces you to dive into who Jesus is. So that's what we're going to do a little bit of this morning, is dive into what Mark says about Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 21 through 26, Jesus is, you know, Mark does not take, waste any time. There's no stuff about him as a kid, nothing. We meet Jesus in his adult ministry. He's already called his disciples, and he has gone with the disciples. In verse 21, it says, They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? How have you come, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. This is the first miracle story in the Gospel of Mark, and it tells something powerful to us, tells us something powerful about what Jesus is up to and what Mark is trying to communicate to his non-Jewish readers, these people who are living most likely in in the area of Rome about who Jesus is. You see, he enters the synagogue, and this man who's possessed by a demon, this demon recognizes Jesus and declares him, the Holy One of God. And my reaction, if I were Jesus, you know, if I'm the Messiah and I come in and this demon says, oh, Holy One of God, my response is that you bet you I am. Uh, that's, that's me, I'm here. Yet Jesus responds and he says, be quiet. And there's a theme throughout the Gospel of Mark where when spirits, evil spirits recognize who Jesus is, or when Jesus heals someone, he tells them to be quiet, to not go sharing who he is. And a lot of times we can ask the question, why exactly is he doing that? And I think there's a rather simple answer. Uh, Patrick shared this morning that the context of all of this is that these are readers who are in an area of captivity. Uh, The Jewish people were in Roman captivity. The Romans were the top dogs. They had their expectations. They had their ideas of who the Messiah is supposed to be. 
the Jewish people at this time, they already had an idea of that. When the Messiah comes, here is what he is supposed to look like, and here is what he is supposed to do. And Jesus is pumping the brakes on that and says, no, let me tell you and let me show you by my actions and my words what the Messiah is supposed to be. Be quiet. Let me show you. Our story continues in Mark chapter 8. Mark just keeps going through all these stories of teachings and hearing uh, miracles and all these whatnot. And by the time we get to to verse 31 in Mark chapter 8, Jesus has already done many great things. He's already fed the 4,000 people. He's healed um, a blind and deaf man. He's healed countless people. He's done these many miracles. And he's still defining for his disciples and for the people following him who he is and what he's here to do. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, this is shortly after Peter confessed to him that he is the Christ, that Peter stepped out in faith and said, I believe that you are the Messiah, that you are the Christ. Jesus then, in verse 31 says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him inside, took him aside and began to rebuke him. I want to pause right there because this is such a, a, it's a fascinating scene. Prior to this, Jesus, or Peter has confessed to him that I believe you are the Christ, that you are the Messiah, that you are the Son of God. And while we applaud Peter for his boldness in making those declarations, we also have to note that Peter had his own ideas about what the Messiah should be. Peter had his own ideas about what the Messiah is here to do, and that is the Messiah is here to overthrow the Romans so that Jerusalem can reign again. Peter had his own ideas. And so, yes, he's made this great, bold proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, And yet when Jesus begins to teach that he's going to have to suffer and he's going to have to die, that doesn't go along with Peter's idea of the Messiah. And I love Peter's reaction because his reaction is not, maybe I'm wrong about this. His idea is, Jesus, you are wrong. He rebukes Jesus, which is not a situation I think we want to be in very often, to be the ones rebuking Jesus. And so Jesus turns and looks at his disciples, and he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter did not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. What are our expectations for Jesus? What are our expectations for the Messiah? Time and time again, Jesus is saying... Be quiet. Let me show you. In Mark chapter 9, uh, we have another fascinating story. I, I, I love, I've, preparing for this sermon has just given me a newfound love and appreciation for Mark because of how jam-packed it is with all these incredible stories. In Mark chapter 9, in verse 30, um, Jesus has just healed a boy with an evil spirit, and the disciples weren't able to, and they asked him why, and Jesus said, this can only be done through prayer. And in verse 30, it says, they left that place, and they passed through Galilee, and Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, because he was teaching his disciples 
he said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Uh, just a fascinating a glimpse into their daily interactions. Here's Jesus once again. He's teaching, the, I'm the Messiah, Son of God. I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to die. But in three days, I'm going to rise again. And the disciples, they didn't understand what he was talking about. And after seeing the last time someone corrected Jesus with Peter, they don't want to ask him about it again. They're content to just don't understand what he's going on, but we'll just let him be. And so it continues in the next verse in 33. It says, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. When you read the Gospel of Mark, we tend to relatively good, do a good job of saying, who's the good guy? Jesus. When we read it, we try to find who's the bad guys, and usually we can say the Pharisees. And then when we look at the disciples, we don't know exactly quite where to place the disciples in there. Um, they're more of just kind of clueless, stumbling, supporting cast. Um, but I it, we resonate so much more with the disciples than I think sometimes we can understand. You see, the disciples, even after witnessing all these miracles and witnessing all these stories, they still have this preconceived notion of what the Messiah is supposed to do. So yes, Jesus is doing things maybe a little bit different than what they had come to understand passed down through generations, but ultimately they still had this general idea, well, one way or another, Jesus is going to overthrow Rome. And when that happens, one of us is going. One of us, twelve, is going to be his right hand man. And so they begin to argue about which of them is the greatest. And I can imagine those conversations. You know, Peter, James, and John are just kind of like, "Well, we're we're the three closest. Sorry, it's a three man race." They're arguing about at when Rome is gone, when Romans overthrown, when Jerusalem is a shining light. Again, who of them will be the greatest? And Jesus hears this, and he just corrects them, saying, you don't understand what I'm here to do. You don't understand why I'm here. If you want to be great, you have to be last. If you want to be great, you have to be here to serve. There's one final story I want us to look at from the Gospel of Mark that, that I think powerfully illustrates what Jesus is here to do. It's in Mark chapter 10. And I want to give you the backstory to this because uh, it just astounds me um, that we're still talking about this. As Jesus, they were just argued about who's the greatest. Jesus said, You have to be, if you want to be first, you have to be the very last, the servant of all. And in Mark chapter 10, uh, you see, Jesus has already predicted his death again. And James and John go to Jesus and say, Jesus, let us sit at your right hand and the other one sit at your left in glory. Whenever this thing plays out how you're saying it will, at the end of it, let me and my brother be your two right-hand men. Let us be 
granted the glory and the prestige and the privilege that comes along with you. And Jesus kind of uh, rebukes them a little bit. The other disciples catch wind of this, and they're not too thrilled that they're getting left out of this discussion. And so Jesus, he calls them together in verse 42, and he said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In this statement, in this paragraph, Jesus is fully revealing to his disciples who he is as the Messiah and what the Messiah is here to do. Jesus is revealing to his disciples that the Messiah is not here to lead a Jewish army to overthrow Rome, despite everything that has been passed down through generations. The Messiah is here to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The rest of the Gospel of Mark, over the next six chapters through the end of the book, is story after story of that statement coming into reality, of his disciples and of the Jewish leaders and of the Romans wrestling with this reality, that the Son of Man is here to serve, not to be served, and give his life as a ransom for many. The Jews, passed down through generations, had expectations of what the Messiah is supposed to be. The disciples had expectations of what the Messiah was supposed to be. We here in 2022, United States, we have an expectation of what the Christ, what Jesus is supposed to be like. Um, One of the, I, I follow a lot of studies that have to do with Uh, growing religious trends in the United States. And if you've ever looked at any of those, you'll notice that one of the quickest growing um, religions, according to these these surveys, is this religion of spiritual but not religious, um, or otherwise known as the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And it's this group of people who, who, who still are connected to something spiritually, but they are lost interests or not connected to Uh, formal religious institutions. And uh, at the the risk of over, I don't want to overgeneralize these group of people because they have all different reasons for why they fall into this camp. Some I can understand and some that I I don't. Um, But I was talking to a friend this past week um, who uh, was a a former, um, he was was one of my former roommates, former uh, Bible major with me at Harding who is now um, it would now fall into the spiritual but not religious camp. And what we were talking about is just catching up but also talking about, about Jesus. Is he, he said something that really stuck with me. And he said a statement. He said, the reason I left the church is because the church didn't understand who Jesus is. Okay. So I said, well, who, I asked him, who is Jesus? And what he said is that Jesus is all for peace, for loving everybody, and essentially described him as uh, a hippie-type figure. Um, And there's aspects of that are true, but it's not the full picture. And I'm not here to say one way or the other on that, 
but to point out that even 2,000 years later, even with all the Gospels, the letters, the books of the Bible, Christians and non-Christians alike have ideas and expectations about who Jesus is supposed to be. And Jesus is saying to us, be quiet. Let me show you who I am. I want to go ahead and invite our our praise team to come back up. Um, This week, as we go throughout our week, as you read through the gospel of Mark, I just want you to kind of slow down and say, Jesus, I know I have ideas about who you're supposed to be or about how you're supposed to work or about what you're supposed to do. But Jesus, let me be quiet and please show me who you are. Show me in what ways you are the Messiah that came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for many.